Thanks, Dorian. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you might move amongst us today. Please transform and change our hearts. Please do that great work by your Spirit through your Word that you long to see happen in us where we are transformed into the image of Christ, to see the world his way, to have our hearts, minds, wills, consciences remade, that we might be able to test and approve what your perfect will is. And we pray that change happens today in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to talk to you very briefly about unintended consequences, just as we start. You know, the unintended consequences, that little principle that you do one thing and something unintended, which you never imagined was going to happen, happens. Always happened for me camping, where, um, you know, we'd be camping and there'd be lots of rain, as often happened in our camping trips. And uh, you'd get up in the morning, you know, the family's sitting over one end of the tarp and, you're, uh, and you see a pole down, it's been come down through it. So you go, turn your, go and fix the pole, lift the pole up, and what happens to the family? Who's been camping? Yeah, I never meant it, right? Massive amount of water. In fact, every handyman job is an unintended consequence of me. You know, I just, I'll fix that deck board. You know, that'll take 10 minutes. I pull up the deck board and the joist rotten underneath. So I have to pull out the joist board and then don't ever start handyman jobs is probably the answer there. You know, you sort of end up with unintended pieces all the way through. Let me give you some unintended consequences from marriage. The way our society thinks about marriage at the moment has got massive unintended consequences that bear on the passage that we're talking about today. We have got a culture that is marrying later and less, lots more de facto relationships and so we're seeing fewer kids born to couples. Instead of three or four, it's now one or two. The average is now below two. It's 1.8 or something like this number. Now, the reasons aren't simple, and they're not simply economics either. Actually, just be, you know, the government tends to think if we just have more child mining, if we just have parent allowances, it'll make it all happen. No, no, it's, it's actually more than an, an, economic, an economic issue. It's, the reasons are cultural. People are marrying later for all kinds of reasons, marrying later, which means fertility becomes an issue. You, you realise this, that bi biological clock is ticking and so on. And that's often a very great tragedy for many, but the ability to have lots of kids diminishes as couples are marrying later. Um, but you also have marriages that are less stable. De facto relationships are less of an environment to raise kids in often, and so people are having less kids, and kids are costly. I mean, you've, you've seen the implications of costliness for kids. They take a lot of energy, they take a lot of work, a lot of money and so on. And, and so lots of couples are saying, let's just have one or two so we, don't get, we can continue to live our lives and bring kids along with us. So a whole culture change is happening now. I do say all this aware that for many people it's painful. They wish they had more kids. But various circumstances mean it's not happening in our society. With less stable relationships, marrying later, fewer kids, the unintended consequence is this loneliness. We have an epidemic of loneliness coming in society. People are less able to establish relationships, satisfying ones, stable ones. And so as we age, we've got fewer deep relationships around us that we can fall back on when we're in trouble. Less family, less kids that you can call on. And those kids that we have, the few that we have, as a society, have all moved off to go and live their lives because they're about living for themselves and they've gone and they've pursued their ambitions and dreams and so on. And so as we age, our society is more isolated than any previous generation. Neighbourhoods are more isolated. 
We've all built massive entertainment rooms. So you can actually stay in every night. You don't need to go out anymore. And neighbours are. And none of this is replaced by Facebook friends. Just you do get this, don't you? Having lots of Facebook friends. Where will they be when you've got to be taken to the hospital? Where will they be when you need your kids picked up after school and you can't get there? Facebook friends. Goodness me, what a... It, um, I was about to say something I'd regret. But... Um, <laughs> People are more and more isolated, and this will be devastating on our society, except there's at least one group where this is not really the case. Do you know which group that is? Christians. Christians. Actually, that's not quite right. Um, it's not true of all Christians. It's true of a certain kind of Christian that we, we won't experience the same loneliness. I'll tell you which kind of Christian it applies to. The Christian who takes seriously the message of this part of the Bible. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is the part we're looking at this morning and I want to show you a particular verse in a moment. But what I'm suggesting is that Paul lays down a pattern of life in Romans chapter 12 a pattern of life where you're to be different, you're no longer to conform to the society around us and I'm going to offer that the more you pay attention to what the Bible calls us on us to be and not conform, the more your life will actually bring on the fruit of a transformed life that God wants you to have with all its blessings, relationships. I want us to see that as we come into this passage, which is costly, it'll have costly implications for us, but I want us to come into it aware that it has actually a beautiful consequence as well, a God-intended consequence. And it's a very simple verse. Come and have a look at chapter 12, grab your Bibles, verse 5. That's the key verse. I'm going to say it a lot this morning. Chapter 12, verse 5. In Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, that's the sermon this morning, that one verse. Now, there's a lot more to say and we'll come to that in a second, but, but that is the one to lay down. If you've got a pen, you've got a pencil, you want to underline, that's the verse to underline. In Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to the other. Becoming a Christian is not a solo sport. I mean, it's not a sport either, but it's not a solo thing, do you see? When you become a Christian, the thing you're called to in Jesus, salvation, is not just you and God. It's not just being reconciled to God so that I can now live my life however I want with God with me. That's not Christianity. So much of this letter is about that. So much of this letter is about you being brought to God. And it's critical we keep laying that foundation again. I mean, how is it that sinners... Uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. We are enemies of God, Romans chapter 5. How is it that people like that can be in relationship with God? That's part of the first part of this book. The way you can be part of relationship with God is because of the sacrifice of God's own Son. Because God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. So that through faith in His blood, through trusting in Him, you might be justified. You might be reconciled, you might be counted by God as if you hadn't sinned, forgiven, pardoned, mercy. That's the first part of this letter. 
But the implications of that are massive. Romans chapter 6, you, you see a miracle happens. A miracle happens in that you are forgiven, that you've had mercy shown to you. But a, a miracle of the Holy Spirit happens to make all that possible. And the Holy Spirit does this. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, the one who died in your place on the cross, when you put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit puts you in Jesus. So that what happens to Jesus happens to you. So that his death is your death. You no longer have to die. It's been done. His resurrection is your resurrection, Romans chapter 6. So you are raised with him. So that his future, where he goes, will be where you go. Where you are. At the right hand of the Father in heaven. You've been united in Christ. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit does that to every person who puts their faith in Jesus. So as I put my faith in Jesus, I'm united in Christ. As you put your faith in Jesus, you're united in Christ. And as all of us are united by the Holy Spirit into Christ, we're united together into the one body, together into Jesus. And this is God's purpose for us. The wonder of this is immense. You're brought to God, reconciled to Him and to each other. You see, in all of this, God is doing a repair job. He's repairing our relationship with Him and He's repairing our relationships with each other. God's intention is me, individually, that I would be all that He intended for me before sin destroyed it. That He would repair sin in my life and not only forgive me the penalty of sin, but take the power of sin away in my life. Now, the power of sin is that it destroyed my relationship with God, but it destroyed my relationship with you. And so he's, he's working to, to destroy the barriers that I built up through my sin. And here's the problem with sin. Well, one of the problems with sin. One of the problems with sin is that it creates barriers that I don't even know sin is creating. You... you, you I create a barrier in my life between me and other people. In fact, sin is so perverse, I actually want there to be a barrier. So I'm, I can live my own life. Just me. And some still want that kind of life where it's just me. And I think this is often men. Now, it's me. And so... I'm a man and I assume you're like me too. And so I think we like our caves. Um, you know, uh, for many of us, if you never saw another person in the next year of your life, you'd be okay about that. Am I right? I, um, when, I get, um, when I need a distraction, I'll often watch um, uh, YouTubes of people sailing around the world uh, solo. You know, that kind of... The, the, you know, the youngest kid to sail around the world on their own. I'll watch those kind of... Um, track them as they go. And, uh, you know, I think Cathy asked me one time, well, you know, why are you doing that? And I said, oh, look, I like the adventure. I love the risk-taking. I love the challenge. I love sailing in the water. And she says, no, no, no. You just love the fact that they're on their own for a year. I go, yeah, that's probably right. Um, are you like that? Many of you are. Others, though, are so gregarious that the thought of not seeing someone today is death to you. You know, both of us need to be remade. 
the, the, the I love my cave, I just want to live my life, you need to be remade, you are part of a body. You who love other people, gregarious, you need to be remade, seeing them is not about you, it's actually about serving and loving others. We all need to be remade. Um, and the danger in all of this is the kind of whole idea of authenticity, actually, just to name this and shame it. Um, you know, there's a modern mood about being authentic, being true to yourself, being who you are. It's a very big thing that comes out in all the movies these days and so on. And there's something that's helpful about it, of course. Don't pretend to be someone else, all of that's helpful. But the problem with authenticity and the whole mood of authenticity is that it locks you up into your sin. Because much of who I am needs to be transformed. Much of truly who I am is not good. Part of who I am is a desire just to be myself and live my way without others. That's part of me. And God's purpose is to transform me and transform you to not be who you are anymore, but to be like Christ, transformed into His image. If you're an extrovert, be transformed to be an extrovert for Jesus. <laughs> if you're an introvert, be transformed to see that you do need people. You are part of a body. We who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the other members. The purpose of God in saving you is for a different life. To no longer be the isolated life on your own life. We belong and we belong to this particular community. That's what Paul's talking about. Now hold all of that because we're going to come back to it in a second. Uh, you see, Paul's desire here, I take it in chapter 12 verse 5, is to get the Roman Christians to live that life. You see, here's his big principle that if you're in Jesus, you're part of a body... And though many, you belong to each other. That's the big thing. But he wants that to be lived out. He wants the Roman Christians, he wants us to live that out. And so what he, I'm suggesting does is he says a bunch of stuff before verse 5 and a bunch of stuff after verse 5 to help live out that principle. What does he say before it? Have a look in verse 3. For the, by the grace of God, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Um, because in Christ, though many, one body, each belong to each other. So what does verse 3 do? Why is he saying verse 3? Here's what I'd suggest. To live out the reality that we are one body and we each belong to each other and we're members of one another, to live that out properly, you need to have a sober assessment of yourself to bring to that. Because the danger if you don't have a sober assessment, you will pollute the ability of a body to work together. You're polluted by pride. The pride that thinks too highly of myself or too lowly with self-pity. Pride will pollute the ability, verse 5, to live out that in Christ, though many, we are one body belonging to each other. How does that work? Well, uh, if you come to the community of people with you at the centre, 
with you as indispensable to this community life, with you and your gifts as the most important gifts that need to be used and this community needs to recognise your place in it, if you bring all of that to us, you'll destroy us. Now, at the other extreme, if you bring a whole kind of false pride, false humility, where I've got nothing to offer and why don't they see, why don't they... And get, you'll destroy us as well. Sober judgment, seeing yourself rightly. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, the next little phrase is a little complicated, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What does that mean? So we're to think of ourselves in sober judgment so that we can exercise our life appropriately within the body. But what is it to say sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you? Well, just a moment on that. It's easy to hear that and imagine, in the English at least, what's being said is that God has given each of us a different amount of faith and we need to soberly assess how much faith we have so that we can properly judge our place amongst the community. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think what he's saying is, and the English doesn't help us so much here, but I think what he's saying is, you are to think of yourself in accordance with the measure of faith, or rather, with the measure that faith establishes. You're to think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure that faith establishes. What measure does faith establish? Humility. All through this book, he's been talking about faith, how we're saved by faith alone and how faith is the centre of being saved. And the point that faith is about throughout this letter is that we're saved not by works but by faith, by bringing nothing to God because we've got nothing to give. We're sinners who can only be saved by grace. So faith actually establishes for all of us the same footing, which is that we're all sinners saved by grace. And so the measure that faith establishes is we're on the same footing. We're all sinners. None of us are worthy. And so if you bring a sober judgment to who you are, it needs to be done in accordance with the measure that faith brings, saved by grace alone. You aren't God's gift to the church. Neither am I. Have you heard that old saying, the graveyard is full of indispensable men? Graveyard is full of men that the, thought the world needed them and couldn't do without them. They're all gone now and we're still functioning. You and your gift are no more important than anyone else's gift. Think of yourself properly with sober judgment. We are all equally saved by grace, part of the body of Christ, equally. Be open to the possibility that what you think we need from you is actually not what you need from you. Be open to the possibility... Now, why am I saying this? Because the danger is that you can imagine, I've worked out what my gift is and that church is not interested in my gift, so I've got nothing to offer. No! It's not about you working out your gift and making that the rule of what we should do. One of the dangers is you can read the list of gifts here in chapter 12 and see that there's a bunch of gifts, serving, prophecy, tongue, um, diligent, uh, leading and so on and so forth. Read 1 Corinthians 12 and the list of gifts there and read Ephesians 4 and add all of that up together and come up with 25 gifts and say, therefore, 
I need to find which one of those 25 is my gift and if I found my gift then that's my gift and church needs to let me use that and if it won't, no, this is just an illustration. Paul is just, you know, if your gift is this, if it's, there's lots of gifts. There's lots more gifts that he never mentions. Music's not mentioned. There's all kinds of gifts. Do not be bound to thinking you've got one gift and this must be... The danger is if you bring that to church, you will actually harm the church that you want to serve. I was talking to the minister of a church um, that was a smallish church and in another country, but he was, he was just expressing concern about it. it wasn't growing. He'd been there a couple of years and um, things weren't moving forward. And I, just talking with him, you know, what do you think's, what do you think's the block? What's happening that's making it not grow, do you think? And we sort of explored some thoughts. And one of the ones he came up with, he says, look, I think the music is not helping. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the music's not great. And he said, actually, when I think about it, it's the piano player. <laughs> and I said, said, what do you mean? Well, he said, people come if they bring their friends and this guy's playing the piano, it's, everyone, no one comes back again. And I said, what's with the piano player? And he said, well, he said, he's not, he's, can't keep time. He's not good at tone. And actually, he's only got nine fingers. I said, that'd make it tricky, wouldn't it? He said, yeah, it's pretty, pretty awkward for the whole thing to work. And so, why don't you ask him to change? And he said, well, he thinks that's his gift. The nine-fingered guy thinks that's his gift. Um, he thinks that's his gift. And, it, and he's quite fierce about it. He, you know, this is the thing he's always done. This is what he gives to church. This is his role and no one ought to change that. Do you see what's happened? Think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't find your gift is so precious that you can't shift and move to help and serve. Now, praise God, they had a conversation. It went very well. The man actually stepped out of that role, moved into another role, and the church has now doubled in size two years later. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Um, I know. (laughs) We are so blessed, aren't we? It's wonderful. Um, Be aware of thinking your gift is who you are and its use is critical. Jimmy Carter. Do you know, has anyone heard of Jimmy Carter back in the history? He was once a president of uh, the United States and uh, as far as we can tell, he was one of the only really born-again Christians. In fact, he was part of that whole language of being born again, becoming a a dominant feature. And and I think he's still alive still. Anyway, he, he attended, as I understand it, a Baptist church. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But Jimmy Carter, so the man who ran America, right? He's in his church as a Baptist church. And he made the comment, it sticks in my mind, he made the comment that the most important thing he does each week is teach Sunday school. Can you imagine how difficult that would be for the President of the United States to think like that? The temptation would be, I'm the man gifted in governance, I'm the man gifted in rule and authority... Unless you actually exercise my gifts properly in leadership in this whole church, I'm not going to give you anything. But he said, no, no, what I give myself to is that classroom on Sundays. Low profile, low prestige, but he served week in, week out as the most important thing he did. You know, every week I tell myself this, that it's not about me. Now, I don't do that because I've got some deep problem. I don't think I've got more of a problem than you've got. But um, I know the human heart. I know my own heart. 
And so I tell myself, um, I be less, others be more. It's not about me. Whatever best serves the body of Christ, I will sit there. And I keep reminding myself of that. Bring sober judgment. Don't overestimate what you bring and don't underestimate. One of the things pride can do, actually, is create self-pity, a kind of a, um, why don't people see what I've got? How come no one asks me to do anything? You can actually bring a false kind of humility and pride to that whole activity. But one of the dangers is, the reality is, you can imagine I've got nothing to offer in a very genuine way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. God gives every single one of us gifts for the furtherance of the body of Christ. Every one of you who loves Jesus has been gifted with something for the common good, to serve the cause of Christ. Um, you know, um, I was many years ago, I was converted into a small church in Manly Vale, and a wonderful little church, and... Um, uh, the minister there took me to at an afternoon tea. He, there was a whole church afternoon tea, and he, he said, "I need you to. I want to introduce you to someone, Andrew. It's an older man, uh, and I want you to catch up with him." And I, you know, I was only a young bloke, but he took me over to this this older guy who was kind of leaning up against a post with a walking frame. Right? You know what that looks like? Really old. Okay. I, I don't think there's any of you here amongst us yet. Is that right? But it'll come. Standing there, and he was just sort of hovering like this. Right. And uh, he must have been 60 or something like that. He's in his 80s. And, um, and I said, uh, you know, the, Jack said, this is Andrew, Andrew Heard. And the man said, oh, I know who you are. And I thought, of course you do. And uh, no, no, no. He said, I pray for you every week. I said, oh. He said, yeah, I go through the names of people in church and I pray for them and I pray for you every week. He'd remembered my name because he'd been praying through the church. And he said, he said, I'm older now. And I said, yeah, you do look a little older. And he said, I'm older now. My wife and I can't get out much anymore. We can't do much anymore. But what we can do is pray. And so around breakfast, we pray. Before lunch, we spend an extended time praying. After, before dinner, mid, we pray. And the end of the night, we pray. And he would pray every day like this. He died, they found him in bed, dead. But they found gathered around him his prayer diaries of all the missionaries he'd been praying for. And his funeral, you know, funerals of old people are usually kind of, there's only half a dozen people there, the minister and a few. Uh, his funeral was packed. They had to get a build, bigger building because he partners so many people in prayer. Now, the moral of this story is if you want lots of people at your funeral, be praying. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was talking to one older lady. She, uh, I said, why have you joined the seniors group? And she said, Duh, because I want to make sure there's people at my funeral when I die. And I said, wouldn't you have been better to join the youth group? <laughs> but but she, um, she, she laughed. Uh, <laughs> do not underestimate what you bring. Uh, you can pray. And partner the work of God in those ways. Everybody has a gift. And the body of Christ needs your gift. Like the human body has different parts, all working together to make it work. That's us here. 
We are the body of Christ in this church. And it's a massive task to make it work so that we can sit here and be blessed, pray God, by what happens. Now, in one sense, what happens, it doesn't matter how big the church is, you still need half a dozen, you know, three, four people. So as a church gets bigger, it doesn't need more people on the stage. That doesn't change, right? Um, in fact, as a church gets bigger, it's more efficient to run church because you don't need a lot more just to run it, you see. But I tell you what happens as a church gets bigger. You need more people, people. As we want to have every single person who comes here looking at the things of Christ, being new to, to church. We want every single one of them walked with through their journey. We don't just want to put on an event. We want to walk with people personally. That therefore means the more people, we need more people to do the walking with them. We need everybody in small groups, which means we need more co-leaders and leaders and core team members. We need more and more people to do people work. People who are converted, we want to follow them up. Every convert, we want to have someone walk with them personally through their conversion experience. Kids ministry, the more kids we get, the extra class we have to put on, the more teachers. Friends, the whole thing needs people because we have people. This is not just about a structure or an organisation, this is relationships. It's massive. Now you might have heard, I hope the intention was that you would, hear that the kids' ministry at the moment has need and opportunity. That doesn't just happen. It happens because people see the need and invest and make a difference eternally. It's huge. Do you know, just you being here now together helps others who are here now. Your very presence helps them be encouraged to see that others serve Jesus and are faithful to Jesus and stand for Jesus. Just the fact that you're here and you smile at others makes a massive difference. The point of this is, in Christ, though many, we form one body and each member belongs to all the others. The key thing to make sure that works is that you bring a sober judgment to your activity together with us. Not too high of you, not too low of you. The part after verse 5, verse 6, 7 and 8, also helps you apply, make verse 5 work. And very quickly, what does that have to say? Well, what follows from verse 5 is simply this. Whatever gift you have, its value is in the fact that you use it. You look there in verse 7. If your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, encourage. If it's giving, give generously. If it's lead, doing diligently. Mercy, cheerfully. There's one little complication here. It's if your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Very quickly, I'm going to offer again, like verse 3, that doesn't mean in accordance with the level of faith you've got, but rather in accordance with um, the rule that faith brings, the, the body of truth that faith is, the theology of the gospel, effectively, is what I think Paul is saying. Bring prophetic messages that fit with the truth of the faith but the point through all of this is gifts are to be used 
Having a gift, don't lock it up. There's no point God giving you something and you not bringing it to us. So let me apply it to us. Let me start by saying, I think the way this works for us is fundamentally about a personal identity issue. It's fundamentally about how you think about yourself. It's that you be transformed in your mind by the renewing of your mind. And the point is, we are to embrace a counter-cultural identity, which is that it's not me and God, it's me as a member of a body. That's who I am. To to completely revolutionise the way you think about yourself. Who are you? In Christ, you're a member of his body, the church, this gathering. That's who you are. Now, that self-perception is so radical, it takes time to rework it into your life, especially if you've been brought up in the individualistic culture that we live in. You are part of a body. That's who you are. Rework the way you think. You're not your own, you were bought at a price. Rampant individualism will take you in a different direction. Swim against it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world that pursues its interests and what it wants to do as a Christian, but travels and holidays and does whatever it wants to do because it's me and God. No, 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 that's not who you are. In Christ, you are part of a body. This body, that's who you are. Who am I? A member of the body of Christ in this place. If you come to faith in Jesus, it transforms who you are. Um, you know, um, person sitting in front of you, person sitting behind you. I was going to say the person sitting next to you, but that's probably a family member. Don't look at them. But the person sitting in front of you, behind you, you belong to them. They belong to you. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, you, you've got to, I belong to you now. Sorry, but that's the deal, right? You can't choose family and you've got me <laughs> and I've got you. Um, change the way you think about your personal identity. First thing. Second thing. You are part of the body for the sake of giving to the body, to this local assembly of Christians. God has gifted you with many gifts. Very few of you have got only one gift. God has gifted you with many gifts. Give. Give. You know, the picture of the kind of church God wants is very different from the kind of church I might want. Do you know, um, the kind of church I think naturally that I would like is a little bit like one of my children's first date with a girlfriend. Let me give you this story. I've asked permission for this one. But one of my children was asked out on a date by a girl. And I think, you know, was looking to be boyfriend, girlfriend or something. He was... He. We're narrowing down now. (laughs) He was asked out on a date by a girl and... uh, went to the movies with this girl or something or other and his mother picked him up and went home and she said, how was the date? And he said, it was awesome. I went the whole time without talking to her. 
<laughs> was, was a great success. Now, look, I mean, he was 18, right? So don't hold that against him. How old was he? I think he was 10 or 8, so, you know, it makes, makes sense, even being asked out by a girl. But uh, I think lots of us want church to be like that. Successful church is that I come in and get out and no one talks to me. I don't have to talk to anyone. Do you know, there's a kind of church culture where you, 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 you come in quietly, no one says a word, you sit in the seat you've sat in in 30 years and the guy with the robe and the dress on does his thing and then you say all the ums and ahs and go out again and success. That's not the church God wants. The church God wants is the one where we engage, where we support each other, where each part does its work. And let me give you, let me give you three steps in this, how to engage. Let me give you the start. Ready? Come every week. Come every week. Now, there are some weeks, sick, holidays, this, of course, but come every week. You are part of a body. This is why we always fought hard against calling the stream through 2020 church. We weren't, it wasn't streamed church because church is us together as a body, relating together. You can't do church in lounge rooms all over the place. That's just sharing information. Church is gathered together, the body of Christ working together. Come every week. Now, I get it that it's hard. But are there things you never miss? Are there clubs you're in that you never miss being there for that sporting event, that club experience, that family? Are there things you never miss? Well, if that's the case, then you prove that you can do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. And I'd offer that the problem for us isn't that we lack the ability to do it, it's that we lack the conviction that we ought. In Christ, we, though many, are one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. Use them. Come and engage. Let me give you some simple ways to engage. Sing. Now, we do. Singing here is wonderful, but just to keep encouraging, just verbalise what you believe in the songs. Sing so others can hear you. Keep pursuing that. That is a huge encouragement to hear you sing. Say amen to the prayers. Simple things. Smile at at least three people. That's all it takes. Hi. And then walk away. <laughs> Just start there. For some of you, that's radical. I get it. I know. I'm there with you. Can I encourage you for the first three minutes after church to talk to someone you've not met before? After three minutes, you can turn your back and walk away, but for three minutes, just talk to someone you've not met before. And pray. Pray for the ministries. Older people, you can pray. It is harder to get out and do things, but you can pray. And that partners the work. Get hold of the prayer emails or see if we can post it to you in the mail. I don't know how it gets to you, but find some way to get the prayer news and be praying. Give financially. That's a way to partner and do it cheerfully. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. If it's giving, give generously. 
Let me take you a next step. So there's the starter. Just then come along, be here, be participating, engaged. Let me give you a little bit further. Give yourself to informal ministries around the place. Take an interest in what's happening. Join a growth group. Join a group of people where you can get to know others and be engaged in their lives in a deeper way, where you can pray for them when they're hurting, share a meal when they need it. Um, do hospitality. Once a month, invite one or two couples, singles, to your house for lunch. The next step, join a formal ministry. Informal is what we want. We want a church just full of people doing informal care and love and support of one another. But formal ministries need to happen for us to actually function. We need to have a structure for the kids' ministries. We need to have welcoming that's structured. These things are formal. They need to happen. Join one of those formal ministry teams. I'll tell you why. You don't have to to do ministry. Formal ministry doesn't mean you're doing ministry when you weren't before. But here's the thing. Experience has shown that you won't do much informal ministry unless you're in a formal ministry. The practice of being locked into a formal ministry helps you actually start to do more informal ministry. And we have massive needs across church. Kids' ministry is a particular concern at the moment. Brothers and sisters, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now, I'm going to ask you a question in a moment. I want you to think about this with me. Um, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Do you know the pattern of the world? Here comes my question. The pattern of the world at the moment is volunteerism is dying. Did you know that? All sporting clubs are struggling to get parents to volunteer to help. You know, surf clubs, uh, Red Cross Appeal, all struggling to get people to help volunteer. Volunteerism is dying. Now, here's my question to you. Why do you think that's the case? And I want you to give me your thoughts. Just shout it out. Why do you think volunteerism is dying in our culture? Selfishness. Now, selfishness has been there a long time. Now, how is house prices doing it? Yeah, so you've got, a, you've got a bit of a catch there when double income now required to buy the house and so husband and wife are both working and, yeah. And so working longer? So I think I heard Don up the back there, was it? The lack of caring. There is a heart issue going on. Yeah. Yeah, there's a culture that my work is only valuable if it's paid. And so to volunteer for something doesn't feel as significant and valuable. Whereas a previous generation, my parents' generation, now we're talking very old, my parents' generation, volunteerism was a highly valued thing. It was part of a culture of giving to society, yeah. That's died. Why else has it died? We've become global and we've become isolated in families. So two things have happened at once. We're part of a massive global thing, but we've also built the entertainment centre so I don't need to leave my little oasis of the family. Yeah? 
We don't think body of Christ anymore. I had someone say between services, they said commitment's gone. They said, in our the older lady, she said, back in my day, if you said you were going to do something, you'd do it. But today, you won't say you're going to do something because you'll be subject to a better offer. You won't commit. You want to wait to see what's the best thing around. COVID's impacted us. You know, COVID's impacted us in that um, 2020, this is across the Western world, 2020 shut down all church ministries, all external to family activities. You were locked in your homes. And you know what a lot of people said? This is awesome. I'm never going back. I'm never going to live the life I lived again. I was too busy. And so it gave people an opportunity to continue to focus in on just themselves. Now, I think there's some truth there. We were all too busy. But the problem is, we shut down kids' ministries. When we started to open back up, send out news, come back, ministries are opening up, and everybody says... I tore up that agreement, rethinking my life. I'm not sure I want to do it anymore. Now, if that's been you, there could be good reasons to do that. I'm not having a go at you. But I'm just saying that's happened across the culture. And brothers and sisters, it ought not be so amongst us. Because in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. That's who we are. We are not just a sporting club, we are a spiritual body that's unique with the implications of all of that that follows. Do you know I hate it during this whole last 12 months, all the multinationals putting on ads and all the ads finished with, we're in this together. Didn't it make you kind of sick? We're in this together. It's true of us in a way that it's not true of anyone else. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to ask, please, that you would help us appreciate what you have made us in Christ, that we, unique of all the communities in the world, are a true body of Christ, that we've been made the body of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Gospel, that we belong to each other. Please help that show itself in the way we live, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't remember don't forget that don't remember. Don't forget that card if you want to find out more about being involved in a ministry team fill it in put your name. You can also see Karina who'll be standing at the foyer stage that white timber stage just out here. You can go and talk to Karina about any of these issues as well.